Our first uh, scripture reading comes out of the book of Job, the ninth chapter, starting the first uh, eight verses. Hear the word of the Lord to us. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. That last line is the important one. We're going to hear about it in a little bit. This this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. 
Well, last week, we looked at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And next week, we'll be looking at the bread of life discourse uh, that uh, Jesus spends a lot of time explaining and teaching his followers that he is the bread of life. And sandwiched, did you get that in there? Bread of life, sandwiched, all right. Sandwiched in between these two stories is the short story that Jesus is walking on water. This story is found in three of the four Gospels. Gospel stories sometimes have slight variations depending upon the audience and the purpose of the Gospel. Doesn't mean that there are errors in the Gospel. It's like where three or four people witness an accident or a crime scene and they would see that scene from different perspectives and they'd pick up certain details that others wouldn't pick up or place more emphasis on one thing or another. Well, that's the way it was with the gospel writers. They were writing to a specific group of people for a specific purpose. They viewed each event from their unique perspective and placed emphasis on certain details of the story. So last week, Jesus wanted to get away with his disciples. But I didn't ask the question why. And, and just so you know, his cousin John had been beheaded. And Jesus wanted to get away with the disciples for some quiet time. He goes across the lake. And before he knows it, the crowd catches up to him. And they're there. So rather than ignore the crowd, he ministers to them. He sees them really as like sheep without a shepherd. So he does what he does naturally. He heals the sick, casts out demons. He teaches them. He encourages them. And the crowd grows larger. And so the disciples were concerned. And they turned to Jesus and said, you know, these people have been here a long time and they're getting hungry. And Jesus turns to Philip. And he says, where are we going to buy food for all these people? And Philip says, eight months wages would not purchase enough food to give each one just a small taste of the food. So Jesus takes the little boy's five loaves of bread and two small fish, gives thanks for them, and he feeds the entire multitude. We talked about that last week. Now, John includes seven signs or miracles and teachings as evidence of who Jesus is. This is to show us that he's the one that the prophets had spoken about in the Old Testament. And through these signs, it displays how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The first sign, if you can remember way back when we started in September, was turning the water into wine. And Jesus revealed there how he was able to take a useless ritual, the cleansing of the hands and the water jugs, and turn it into an everlasting covenant like marriage was. And the second sign 
was the healing of the official son. And there Jesus demonstrated how he is the word of God. He just spoke the word and the, the servant was healed. The third sign, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. We discover that Jesus is the one who is able there to forgive sins. That's a new thing added in. And the fourth sign was the feeding of the 5,000. Pretty impressive. And that's where Jesus starts to help them understand that he really is the bread of life. And now we come to the fifth sign, walking on water. John chapter 6, verses 16, actually 15 to 24. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into the hills by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into the boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles... They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd uh, that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. When some boats from uh, Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. you realize that Capernaum really was Jesus' headquarters at Peter's house. And so they would go there and back and forth. They would go across the lake. Uh, they would go four or five miles this way or that, uh, five, six miles that way, but then they'd always come back to Capernaum. Um, when you see the Sea of Galilee, you discover that they didn't walk. It's they didn't go very far, and they went across the lake, I think, to do it quickly. But the people would run along the side of the lake and sometimes would get to the place where Jesus was headed ahead of him. And that's just the way it worked. These people were, it wasn't that far. We're not talking uh, miles and miles and miles uh, away from each other. Well, have you heard the phrase, keep calm and carry on? The phrase originated as a slogan in the spring before World War II. Anticipating the dark days ahead, the British government uh, designed a poster to hang in areas of being targeted by German bombers. Around two and a half million copies of this poster were printed but not one of the posters was posted up on any wall because the officials had last-minute doubts about whether the content was too patronizing or too obvious and back and forth. They went 
in argument. They couldn't settle on the appropriate time to hang the posters. Save for a select few, the majority of the posters finally were just destroyed. Now fast forward six decades to the year 2000. And one of the remaining posters was discovered by a bookseller. He bought a box of books from a family and hidden inside one of the books was one of the posters. He liked the poster so much that he put it up on the wall right behind the cash register. He had no idea of its rarity or even of its value. Pretty soon customers were asking where they could buy a similar poster. Keep calm and carry on. So the shop's owner, being a pretty good businessman, decided to print copies. And little did they know how fast Keep Calm craze would spread in England. Keep Calm products flooded the market. Uh, The phrase was plastered on every possible surface, from T-shirts to mugs to key rings to to rugs to posters to... On and on it went. Keep calm and carry on is the lessons the disciples are going to learn in this event that we're looking at today. So to get the full story, we need to look at all three of the gospel passages. Only John in his gospel records that the people were going to try to make Jesus their king by force. And only in Mark do we read that Jesus looked out and saw the disciples when they were on the lake straining at the oars in the, in the battle with the, with the wind. And only Matthew do we read about what happened to Peter's uh, walking on water episode. See, God has a plan for me and has a plan for you. And it's good. But that doesn't mean that it'll be free of uh, hardships. I read about a man who had a book stall. He sold mostly Christian books. One of the other traders there at this uh, place that he sold was named Simon. On Monday mornings when he went to get breakfast, roll, and a cup of coffee, Simon would always ask him the same two questions. How was he? And then he'd ask, And how's God? Each time he asked, he gave him the same answer. Most weeks he would reply, I'm good. Well, and he would say that depending on his health. But he would always say, and God is good. Though Simon never told him, he was told by another seller at the uh, place where they worked that Simon had lost a son and was hurting and bitter towards God. Well, this started the man thinking, and, and, and so it was his way of, Simon's way of initiating and starting a conversation. None of us likes cliches or platitudes. So the first man uh, was quick to follow up his statement, God is good, but that doesn't mean everything in my life is good. But God is good. And for all of us, life is an emotional roller coaster, you know that. Full of highs and lows. It's full of both good and difficult circumstances. And it's sure true of the disciples' lives. 
They start rowing across the lake. It, it wasn't a bad time. And all of a sudden, a, a storm quickly blew against them. Do you remember getting pop quizzes in uh, school? I hated them. My teachers loved them. In the text for today, it must have seemed like a pop quiz for the disciples. they just come through an incredible day. After sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing him teach uh, the multitudes, and then they helped him feed over 5,000 men, could be up to 20, 25,000 total people. And there was no trick involved. They felt they, they could hand and touch the five loaves and the two fish. And when it was over, they picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers to take with them. That was the lesson for that day. It was a lesson about the power of Jesus. And it was a lesson about his sufficiency And now they'd been exposed to the lesson. It was time for the pop quiz. And the quiz takes the shape of a strong wind blowing against them as they try to cross the lake. Let me just remind you, explain a little bit about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 500 feet below uh, sea level. And um, it's 150 feet deep. It's a deep lake. And there are mountains on the east side and the west side. And the winds can blow down the canyons. And at times, when they were the most severe, could cause 20-foot waves on the lake. And the disciples are caught in a big storm. I don't know if it was 20-foot waves, but it was a big storm. Jesus had sent them away to across the lake. And in the middle of the lake, the disciples find themselves in the middle of a big storm. And the question today, I think, is, are you in the middle of a storm in your own life? You may be thinking to yourself, Lord, what did I do to deserve this, whatever this is? And sometimes uh, what makes a situation even harder is that it's possible that you haven't done anything wrong. And even though you've been faithful, you still find yourself in the middle of a storm. So, I want you to know that you're not alone. The disciples have have exactly the same kind of an experience. You know, this wasn't the first storm the disciples ever experienced on the Sea of Galilee. One thing we can know is that Jesus knows what we're going through. We're told he knew they were in trouble because he was watching them. It's true for us as well. But the storm, no matter how hard we look in the middle of the storm, we can't see Jesus. But that doesn't mean he doesn't see us. All the disciples had to do was to look at the bottom of the boat and see the 12 baskets full of food left over from what the miracle he'd done. They speak of the power of Jesus, but Jesus wasn't in the boat with them. They should have realized that God who provided for the needs of all of those people is the same God who wouldn't fail them in the middle of a storm. When it comes down to it, 
Aren't we guilty of the same thing? God blesses us in so many ways. But whenever a storm comes along, we seem to forget everything. This is why we're instructed to remind each other of the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. Jesus says it in one word, remember. So there the disciples are about three and a half, four miles out in the lake, rowing against the wind when they see something. Jesus is walking on the water and it looks like he's going to pass them by. Why did Jesus come walking on the water? It's a pretty good question. He was walking on the water to teach the disciples something. And I think to to teach us something as well. And it wasn't how to walk on water. We know this because after the event, we never hear of them walking on water again. Not even Peter, who tried and failed. You know his story. He took his eyes off of Jesus and began to sink, and Jesus had to save him. Why do the disciples need to know this? It's because he's going to send them out to do the impossible. Jesus is going to commission these very ordinary men to go out and make disciples of all men in every land across the world. Now that sounds impossible to me. These men aren't natural born leaders. They're not seminary graduates. But these men will accomplish the impossible. Why? How? Because God is with them. All things are possible. Why do we need to know this? Because God has called each one of us to do the impossible. I want to say that to you. You have been called by God to do the impossible. He's called us to live a clean life in a dirty world. He's called us to be faithful witnesses of Jesus. He's called us to be Christ to the world. And he's shown us that this is possible because he is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas, remember? Second thing we see here is the fear of the disciples. They're terrified. It had been a long day. Because of the storms, the disciples are wet. They're tired. They're ready for a break. But nowhere do we read that they had been afraid until now. They faced storms in the past. It didn't especially trouble them. But now there is something else that's troubling. It's the sight of Jesus walking on the sea. First of all, they thought he was a ghost. They weren't ignorant. They knew they were in some deep water. They knew they had a big problem with the sea and the wind. But in the middle of all of this happening, the one thing that they were sure about was that it was impossible for a man to walk on water. This was against reason. It was against human experience. They could see Jesus doing the impossible, and it frightened them. 
They were frightened because they realized they were, uh, uh, there was something happening that was far greater than they could imagine. They were frightened by the holiness of Jesus. What does it mean to be holy? The term holy often brings up images, you know, of divine goodness and serenity and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I think that falls short of the real meaning of the word. Holiness refers to the way in which God is holy. He's set apart. He's distinct from the rest of his creation. And they realize there is one in their presence that exceeds human understanding and it frightens them. Just think about this. How would you feel being in that boat? They saw Jesus doing what ordinary men couldn't do. They saw and it frightened them. And it's at this point that Jesus calls to them and instructs them not to be afraid. Great words, comforting words from Jesus. Now catch catch this. What we see here is that when we get past the fear, then we can come to Jesus. When you come to Jesus, the other problems you face are not so bad. So let me ask you again, what's your storm? What are you struggling with right now? Are you uh, the storm of acceptance or the storm of security or the storm of aging or the storm of significance or the storm of loneliness or the storm of illness? What we need to understand is that when the storms strike, we need to invite Jesus into our boat. And when we do this, we realize that our problems aren't so bad. When we invite Jesus into our boat, we find that we have been accepted. Accepted in Christ, given eternal security, given the opportunity to accomplish what we were designed to accomplish. Given the promise that he'll be with us both now and forever. In the storm, we were given a pop quiz. The storm reveals that we're depending upon our own strength. Or are you depending upon the one who can calm the storm? Which is it for you? Now let me be real. We we look at this and we we see the, the storms of our own life and our own healing and our own, you know, I've been through the storm of uh, recovering from my two surgeries. You've been very gracious to me while this process is going on. But I'm warning you now, I'm feeling a whole lot better. So all I'm saying is I'm, I'm warning you. You know, you never know where I'm going to go from this point. But the other storm, one of the storms that we collectively are involved in is the process of transitioning from one pastor, Pastor Bob, to a new pastor, whoever that's going to be. And we have to be ready. We have to put this place in order so that we can be reaching out. It's a storm. It's a pop quiz for us. Are we going to trust or are we going to panic? If you panic, you'll sink. Just like Peter did when he was walking on the water. 
we need to pull together now. It is time. The PNC, the Pastor Nominating Committee, their, uh, their work is beginning in earnest and they're working and, and we've got to be ready. They're going to be ready, but are we? And that means we need to be reaching out to people and say, yeah, this guy's only here for a short time now, we hope. Uh, but come and check him out. He's weird and you'll enjoy him. I get it. I understand. But we need to invite and encourage. Not wait for the new pastor to come because, well, we don't have that much time to wait. We need to start acting now. I've been talking about this for over a year now. Now it's time for you to act. You're in the storm. And they're pretty big waves. And we're seeing people that have left and we've seen people that are dying now. And we need to be together, working together. And so I encourage you, the best thing that you can do is invite somebody to come with you to church. The best thing. And I want to encourage you to do that. And so uh, someone once said that you're either in the midst of a storm or you've just come out of a storm or you're headed into a storm. If God has a plan for me, that is good, then why does he give us storms? Well, the short answer is to teach us. The long answer is to teach us. <laughs> God will take us through the storm so that we'll be strengthened in character. And he'll teach us a lesson about God's will. So that we can experience God in a fresh new way. First we strengthen our character. And suffering produces perseverance. And character. And hope. So Christian. Let me say to you hold on. Even in the midst of your own personal storm. You may not be able to see Jesus. But he clearly sees you. And he's coming to be with you. So keep calm and carry on. Jesus, Emmanuel, is with us. Let's pray. Lord, this passage has got so much to tell us, so much hope, so much possibility that, that even when we feel uh, depressed or down or uh, struggling in the midst of our own storm, or the storm of our church, or whatever storm it is, you can see us. We're, we're not alone to you. You can see us, and you are calling us forth. Thank you, Almighty God, for your love and grace and care. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.